What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. This episode is brought to you by a landlocked naval officer who needed a new hobby outside of drinking snobby IPAs. Thank you, Mark. Well, hello, all you Hive Jive junkies and Hive Jive family out there. It is Wednesday, and uh, are you scratching your head and kind of trying to figure out what exactly is going on? Um, I know you may be a little shocked to be hearing from us on a Wednesday. You've already had one episode this week, right? What's the deal? What's going on? Well, this is the first time in quite a long time since we have actually released a bonus episode on the main segment of the Hive Jive for everybody out there. And so that is what's going on today. That's why you're actually getting two episodes this week. And I am super, super, super thrilled to be here with you today because I have a very, very special guest with me here. We are going to be talking with Miss Gemma Astley from Homestead Hens and Honey. That's right. Gemma has her own podcast out there all about the homesteading life, gardening, beekeeping, chicken keeping, and even raising reptiles and living with lots of little cute puppies and whippets. And so I am very, very thrilled, Gemma, that you have taken the time to sit down with us today and have a conversation. And I think everybody is just going to be enamored with you. And I'm so excited to get to talk to you this afternoon. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to uh, to get these questions done and to hear from you and see how you guys are doing. Oh, I, I promise I will make it as painless as possible. Um, hopefully, fingers crossed. There, <laughs> so. uh, There is only one embarrassing thing in there and we will get to oh, it in a little bit. Um, oh, but no. it's, it's, not, it's not so embarrassing to you as it is to uh, one of your daily companions. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> so anyhow, um, you are the host of Homestead Hens and Honey, and I actually came across you because you had tagged us in one of your posts. That's when you first popped up on my radar, and you had mentioned you know, hey, I heard this thing on the Hive Jive podcast, you know, you guys should go check it out. And I'm like, oh, that was really awesome. Thank you so much. And I kind of went in and went back and I looked at it. And when I pulled up yours, I was like, oh my God, she talks about chickens. And <laughs> I used to have chickens. I loved my chickens and I so miss my chickens. So it was really cute. Like to me, it was really cool to go through there and see that you were doing this entire kind of homesteading where you didn't just talk about bees and you didn't just talk about chickens. You've got your reptiles and your dogs and gardening and just all the things that would come into kind of a homesteading lifestyle. And I found that very, very appealing. I also really like how you do your episodes because you go through them and it is, it's kind of like a self-narrative where mm -hmm. you're going through the story, but you're, you're explaining like what led up to it, what you did, in retrospect, what you should have done, um, or in retrospect, it was better that you did it this way because it ultimately worked out great. And I like that because it it helps give insight into why you made the decision or what was going on with that. And, and in all honesty, that was kind of how I originally envisioned the other half of the Hive Jive going is oh. I kind of envisioned, you know, when we did this whole thing with Ken, 
Ken being able to come back and be like, okay, so, you know, based on what I had learned from you, I went out and I was doing this and, you know, it just, it just didn't really do what I thought it would, or I found that this works really well in my area. You know, that was kind of the, the reciprocation that I really thought initially. But I learned very quickly that the best way to have everything not go as planned is to show Ken the script. (laughs) (laughs) If you want him to go off script, just show him what the script is and he will immediately screw it up. Um, It is hysterical and it is the most consistent thing ever. If you show him three pages and say, "Okay, don't talk about this because this will be on page three. It'll be literally the first thing he brings up. Oh, bless. (laughs) So... And for those of you out there listening today, you can tell Ken is not here. Um, This is another one of our where we're going through and we're doing kind of some testing of other systems. And we are working our way up to where Ken can join us on these interviews that are virtual. Um, But as of this moment, we do not quite have that there yet. So he will be back with us very shortly. Um, He gets to listen to them in retrospect and then laugh at all the things that I say. So that's always good. It's good that he's good natured and and has a good sense of humor. (laughs) Yes, he definitely seems pretty easygoing. He is. He's a big teddy bear. (laughs) So, okay. So what made you decide that you wanted to start a podcast? The shortest answer to that really is just that I really, really wanted to talk about bees and I felt like I didn't have anyone to talk to about them. So I got into podcasts as a listener. I, like many people, I came through true crime. So for other people, anyone listening, you've probably seen all the big true crime podcasts out there, like Last Podcast on the Left or My Favorite Murder. And I kind of came through Last Pod. And for me, I'm very behind when it comes to technology. So I was like, oh my goodness, podcasts have existed for ages and I had no idea. So I got into the true crime. And from there, I started to think, well, what is there about beekeeping? And what is there about chicken keeping and homesteading? And I did find podcasts that I really enjoyed, but there aren't that many. And some of my favorites, I actually found out there'd been no new episodes for six months or a year. And it seems like they just kind of poof, vanished. So for me, I started thinking, well, I'm doing all this research. I'm getting the hands-on experience now. Once I had my bees here at the house, I obviously was still working with my chickens and working in my garden. And I decided to float the idea to some of my friends and my husband. And I was like, you know, do you think if I if I did this, anyone would listen? And the feedback was very positive. And they told me to, you know, what's the harm in giving it a go? So I just put together some ideas, thought about, you know, what I wanted to call it, how I wanted to shape it, what I really wanted to talk about. And then I just sort of threw myself in headfirst and hoped that it would work out. Well, and and from my perspective, I think it actually came together really well. I like I said, I love listening to it. I love the flow of it. Um, I lo- okay. So now to you, this obviously doesn't count, but I love your accent. I love the British tone <laughs> to the voice. Um, I'm Thank a sucker you. when it comes to anything like that. For for certain, that's a good way to catch my attention <laughs> right there. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm surrounded with redneck ease most of the time. So hearing yes. something that sounds so sophisticated is just a nice breath of fresh air. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I won't lie the accent is actually a big part of what also pushed me to do it because I've lived in the U.S. for 12 years a little bit more than 12 years and I consistently have people tell me oh my god I could listen to you talk forever 
And so I thought, oh, great, then I will do a podcast. And now people can listen to me talk forever. <laughs> it was perfect. It was made to be right. great. <laughs> I love that. That is that's that is a great compliment, actually. Um, it is far mm -hmm. better than the you have a face for radio comment that sometimes oh, Lord. DJs and disc jockeys <laughs> will get. Because um, oh, no. at first you're like, oh, thanks. Wait, what? <laughs> 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 yeah, I think that's a perfect example of a backhanded compliment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was it was very, uh, very not nice whenever it comes right down to it. But having a voice that somebody could listen to and listen to you talk forever, that is that's perfect, especially for podcasting. So it looks kind of like you found an, a nice home and you're coming up actually on your potiversary. This is your anniversary is coming up within days of this. Oh my God, is it really? It's so funny that you've tracked that and I'm just like, where am I? What time of year is this? I don't know. But yeah, that actually makes sense because I, oh my Lord, no, it's time that makes no sense to me at this period in my life. So I am <laughs> honestly kind of shocked that you said that. Yeah, the, so your first episode release was on September 5th and your oh next episode release which technically air date for this episode is actually going to be a special release on Wednesday the 2nd. And you will have an episode that comes out on Thursday the 3rd. So your next episode is technically right just before the cusp of your anniversary from when you started doing podcasting. Oh my goodness, look at you doing your homework. I love it. A little bit, a little bit here and there. You know, it, it helps. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely helps. So... Not to um, not to make you have to pick a favorite, but mm -hmm. out of all of the different things that you have to do on the homestead on a daily basis, which one of them brings you the most joy, would you say? If if they could, it could be all of them. That's There is no wrong answer to this. Yeah, that's a very good question. So the first thing that comes to mind is just my dogs. So for anyone who has listened to my podcast, who follows me on Instagram, I am a crazy dog lady and I am madly in love with my dogs. So just getting to wake up every day and seeing their sweet little fuzzy faces, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind. But in terms of homesteading, um, the bees for me, when I started beekeeping, I did a year of study and then I started actually keeping bees here on my property. And when I had my first two hives, for me, the more I worked with them, the more I just keep on feeling that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be working with bees. I'm supposed to be involved in beekeeping and educating people and talking about them endlessly. This is it for me. It brings me so much joy. And I just feel so much better whenever I've had a chance to get out there and just spend time with them. I can absolutely understand that. When you when you first got started and you were building up to it, did you have any of these kind of magical, inspiring moments where, uh, like, for instance, with me, I was putting together my very first hive and I'm mm -hmm. sitting out there, I'm in my driveway, I'm assembling things and all of a sudden a honeybee flies around my head, lands on the board that I was about to pick up and start working on and it's just walking around, checking things out and I, I got the biggest kick out of that and I was like, that mm -hmm. is so cool. It's like a sign that this is this is what it's supposed to be and then I had to tell it, I was like, now look, it's not ready yet, you can't move in, <laughs> like I have to finish. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So it's funny, actually, that you mentioned that because I feel like that first year when I was doing all this study and I actually had the opportunity to get bees. I took a in-person class um, and it was like a weekly class that we met and it was a big group. And at the end of the class, we would have the opportunity to order 
um, as a group and get like discounts or whatever from local people for hive equipment and then the bees themselves and I ultimately decided that it was too soon for me I felt I saw that learning curve I felt very out of my depth and I decided you know there's no rush I don't need to rush this I will take it slow and that whole period of time while I was waiting for the following spring to get bees whenever I was outside I just felt hyper aware of honeybees and other pollinators. So bees would come down and they'd like land on me or they'd land on the book I was reading about honeybees or like a bumblebee would come by and like sit on my head. And every time that happened, I just felt very much like, okay, I have to, I have to keep doing this. I have to eventually have my girls because everything is pointing towards it. Yes, absolutely. I love those moments, those little where you're just kind of lost in what's going on and and then suddenly like the the awe of nature is just right in front of your face and I love it it's very magical absolutely and actually right now on my Instagram I feel like I'm spamming everyone with pictures of sunflowers because I can't get over how many different bee species are visiting them every day and it just doesn't stop being magical every single time I see there's little sweat bees like from the Osmia group and all different kinds of bumblebees. I've had what I think is a milkweed or a goldenrod beetle. They've been visiting all of the sunflowers. And I just, I love them so much. And I love sharing those photos because for me, it's never going to get old ever. That's perfect. And it is sunflower season anyway. So, you know, you might as well share the love of all the sunflowers while they're there because here in a little while, they'll all be gone and we'll have to wait another year before we get to see them. And some of yours that you've sent the pictures of are huge. Yeah, I so this is actually my first year growing sunflowers. And as with many things, I was like, oh, I wish I'd done this sooner. Look at the great response from my pollinators. Uh, but the really big ones are called mammoth sunflowers. And I've had that packet of seeds for like two years. So I wasn't even sure if they would grow. So I'm really pleased. And then the smaller ones that tend towards the orange color are a variety called autumn beauty. And they're a little slower to flower. So I should see their full colors and bloom as we move into September. Very cool. Very cool indeed. So you have kind of an assortment of queens. How many actual hives do you have at the moment? Um, so I, I technically have four full hives and then three nucleus colonies. Okay. And I know that from your past episodes you've gone through, you do kind of like an entire hive update on each of the different colonies, let everybody know what may have changed, you know, anything like if you were going through and attempting to do requeening or letting them requeen themselves, you know, did they make it? What was the, the trials and tribulations of that? But through all of those, I've kind of picked up on a few things. So I'm going to assume that the the OH is that just stands for like your your Ohio kind of your your general stock there in Ohio? Yeah, the OH queen, that's my Ohio queen. I received from a teacher of mine and she's a fifth generation Ohio queen. Awesome. And then you've got Scrats, which Ken yes. will be very very happy to hear because he was just dying to try them. And he finally did get some this year, or his son did rather. Um, mm -hmm. And I haven't necessarily heard how they fared because they've, they've had a very rough year out there where Ken's at. He's about an hour and a half from Austin. So uh, mm -hmm. it's, been, it's been very, very just hard. They, they didn't have the flow that they had the year before. The year before, you couldn't look anywhere without seeing wildflowers just as far as the eye could see. And this last year, it wasn't like that. 
So they've been having a, a really hard time, and I'm not sure if the Scrats are still around or not. But what is your opinion of your Scrats? I am in love with them. They are incredible bees. I So I had heard about the Canadian bees, like in general, being um, extremely productive. It's, you know, they, they feel that this long, cold winter is coming and they work super hard. And then I did some reading. I didn't read all of it, but I, I went through the actual scientific um, paper that was published on how they produced the Saskatraz bees. And I was absolutely fascinated. I loved the fact that it was um, a project that was built between biologists, entomologists, and then beekeepers. So the best of both worlds. And on a personal note, one of my best friends went to the University of Saskatchewan, which is where they originally created the Saskatraz honeybees. So I was like, okay, this is great. And I saw that one of our big bee suppliers here, um, Queen Wright Colonies, they'd sell a lot of packages and they had the Saskatraz, um, technically they're Saskatraz hybrids because they mate full Saskatraz uh, virgin queens with uh, local drones. Uh And I had to get one. Yes. So they're technically a hybrid, but hopefully with the strong Saskatraz genes. And that hive, now they did have some advantages because unlike someone who just got into it, who maybe had frames that just had foundation on um, and no drawn comb, just dumping a package in there. And then the bees obviously have to work very hard to pull all that wax, create the comb. I had a colony that died over the winter. And so after I had um, cleaned out that colony, frozen any frames that I was worried about, I put that hive back together with all the drawn comb and I put the package in there. So I gave them a, a head start. But even with that head start, they have just exploded like gangbusters. They have drawn more comb than any of my other colonies. They actually are responsible for almost all of the honey that I harvested this year. And I had to split them because they were just exploding. I could barely get in that hive because there were so many bees. And so I split them and they raised their own queen successfully, the queenless part. And so now I have my original Saskatraz queen and I have her daughter queen who is doing beautifully. That is awesome. And your temperament on them, would you say they are, they're fairly docile, fairly gentle? That's been my experience. And it's funny that you ask because when I was doing all the research on Saskatraz bees, I didn't actually see anything that said that they can be grumpy or spicy, as I like to call it. And then I heard on your podcast, you saying, oh, they're known to being a little bit more spicy. And I was like, oh, Uh no, I didn't see that anywhere. So then I started worrying, like, what have I done? But actually, they have been incredibly docile and just sweet to work with. The only thing I did notice was that when my county inspector came out, he accidentally squished a couple of the girls and their response was very quick, much faster than I've seen my other hives respond. So probably about 10 girls very quickly um, flew to his glove where he'd squished the other girls and tried to sting him. But a little bit of smoke eased everything off and, and the hive as a whole didn't become especially defensive. That's good. That's very good. I I think actually, so a lot of that information that we had gotten had come from commercial beekeepers in the South 
that had attempted to use the scrats and decided mm-hmm. that they were too mean. They were they weren't <laughs> worth the effort for the honey production they were supposed to do to have to deal with the attitude that supposedly came along with them. But I think one of the things that is key to know with that, though, is kind of something that you mentioned, which is the fact that you weren't getting the pure Saskatraz bee. You were getting right. a pure blood queen that was then open mated with your local feral stock. And that's very similar to what I do. I bring in these Russian Carniolan hybrids And then I do what I call the second gen queens off of them, where I raise Mm -hmm. full blood queens, but then those queens go out and they open mate with our local feral genetics. And I, I have this feeling that if you've got a bee that already responds quicker, and then you do allow it to open mate here in the southern states... You get Mm -hmm. some of our little spicy genetics in there from some of our, uh, as I affectionately say, our our Texas redheaded mutts. And you could end up with a bee that is very much not pleasant. And that's probably what has occurred in a lot of these commercial operations. Um, The colonies more than likely did requeen themselves. They swarmed. They did whatever. And then you get this offshoot second generation. And a lot of times, for whatever reason, in some breeding experiments, the F1 that first mm-hmm. split from that when it is open mated is just evil. And then the F2, F3, <laughs> F4 are completely fine. And it is so weird that that occurs. But that's something that is actually very common with like the pure Russians too. The Russian bee mm-hmm. can be amazing. The F1 split off of the Russian is Satan. And then two, three, and four are just completely fine. So I, I don't know. It, it may be that, you know, that they did have that type of, of scenario because that beekeeper, the one predominantly that had the most hives and was like, oh, I did that never again. He actually did live. He lives down here in central Texas. He's no longer a commercial beekeeper. He got out of it entirely. But mm-hmm. uh, everybody else does like a, another big beekeeper up here does Cardovan. And that's kind of the, mm-hmm. the main bee that he runs. Um, I'm very, very, very particular to the Russian Carniolan hybrids. And I did that mainly because of the genetic aspect for mite control. They right. do really well at the grooming and the the being kind of like the varroa sensitive hygienic bees. You know, they're they're very good at hygiene and grooming and cleanliness. And they don't traditionally produce as much honey as a an Italian bee. But at the same time, I have found them to be better of a disposition, more pleasing of a disposition than even the regular Italians. And a lot of people kind of look at me the same way and they're like, but didn't you say there was Russian in there? Aren't the Russian bees Mm -hmm. supposed to be really mean? And, you know, it's all perspective because down here we do have those redheaded mutts. There's a lot of the scutellata genetics to uh, avoid Mm -hmm. the other word. And (laughs) it ends up becoming a scenario where once you're accustomed to dealing with that, you get something like a pure Russian bee and it's like a teddy bear. (laughs) It's like just the most docile thing you've ever seen in comparison to what you're used to. So it's all perspective. Absolutely. And I have tried to, when I first got the package, I was very clear that the queen that came with it was um, technically a hybrid. And I try and remember to say that every now and then on the show, because what I've noticed in my local beekeeping groups, and full disclosure, I'm not a member of any clubs because I'm kind of a hermit and I don't like going out to like groups of people. <laughs> and um, and also just the, you know, the clubs are, well, they're always aimed at that time of day when I'm like, yeah, this is my busiest time of day. I'm like picking people up. I'm dropping animals off. I'm doing feeding evening chores. I can't take out an hour to drive somewhere and, and do a meeting. So 
my kind of contact with other beekeepers is is through online methods and i have Nothing noticed wrong with a number that. of well, and Especially... i think you know it's all social life right yeah yeah but it's in, especially in today's day and age with COVID, I, I think you, I know, you right? picked a great, <laughs> great route to deal with that. Absolutely. So, and I, and I do feel bad, like my neighbor who I've mentioned on my show a couple of times, you know, he's, he's an older gentleman. So he's very much into the meetings he's been going for years and I'm sure he's missing them right now because of COVID and having to stay home because obviously people just aren't meeting in groups. Yeah. Um, but I've I've noticed that a lot of people were asking, hey, did anyone get the Saskatraz Queens from Queen Right, you know, or other sellers and how were they doing? And it was really split right down the middle. It looked like about 50% of us were having an absolutely incredible experience and were blown away by how productive and sweet natured our Saskatraz hybrids were. And then the other half had terrible experiences with either they swarmed straight away or they did a number of like a main swarm and then after swarms and they were having a really hard time controlling the after swarms. Or some people, they killed the queen straight away and the colonies requeened and it didn't go as well as they had hoped or they kept failing and they had to end up buying a queen because they were falling behind and all these kind of things. And it's why it's important for me to make sure people understand that if you buy that queen and it's a hybrid and that female has been open mated, this is why you're seeing differences. Because, you know, a queen, she goes out on her mating flight. As you know, she mates with, you know, a number of drones. She gets over a million different sperm that she stores only something like, I can't remember what the statistic was. I think it's like 5% of it. And it's just a complete mix. She'll take from all of the different sperm that she collected. So there's no way for us to say, yes, this queen who open mated in X area and that queen who open mated in Y area, those are going to have the exact same temperament or the exact same productivity. We can't say that. And it's so important that you read when you're buying a package that you really look at what they're saying about the queen's genetics. One of the interesting things that Ken learned this year, because he was on this kick in the the wintertime and kind of coming into early spring, he was hell-bent and determined he was going to buy as many packages as he possibly could, regardless how many (laughs) times I told him I, I am still, we, in fact, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, it was either yesterday or this morning, we already had a conversation where I was like, now, Ken, remember quality over quantity. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was out there looking for different packages and he was going to different places. And one of the things that he came across was that a lot of the major package sellers, you can trace them all back to some of the same origins And it may be Mm -hmm. one massive producer that is then selling or reselling to these other areas. And he narrowed it down to like three major beekeeping operations that pretty much all the packages he looked for traced back to. And, you know, and I kept telling him, I'm like, well, think of it that way. You know, you're you're getting bees from X, Y, Z and then you're getting bees from ABC, but they may have all came from, you know. D. <laughs> like, right. so did you really get the the mixture that you thought you were or did they just get shipped around or resold or sold under a different label? And that's one of the things that I tried to tell him, like, don't worry about if you want to try something like that genetically, don't necessarily worry about buying the entire set of bees from there. Just get a queen mm-hmm. from there and install that queen and give it six weeks. And then you'll start to see some of these traits start coming through. And eventually your colony will be whatever that queen is. And instead of trying to go and find, you know, oh, I want these many packages that are Russian and these many that are this. And so it's a, it's a learning curve for everything for sure. 
You do have one other queen, and yes. you have her listed as, and I quote, Southern. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you elaborate on what Southern implies? Not really. So she is from one of my original nucleus colonies. So when I started actually hands-on keeping of bees um, about a year or so ago, I got two nucleus colonies from one of my teachers. And I had just kind of missed the boat in the sense that she used to put her own Ohio genetic-based queens in her nucleus colonies. But she had it exploded in popularity. And so the year that I purchased, she actually bought a number of queens from a southern producer. And that's kind of all I know about it. And I know. I did ask her at one point, and I believe that he does source them from someone else. So it's probably one of those three queen producers that can track down. Um, so, and here in Ohio, you know, that we, we're kind of like that, right? So if we're talking about the South, we're just like, oh, the South. You're just one big <laughs> mass down there. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it's fun. Yeah, that's all I know. So she's Southern, and um, I, I'm assuming she's from a queen producer in probably like Florida or somewhere. That's my assumption. It could very well be. There's You do have some major queen producers in Florida. You've also got some major queen producers in Texas and then some major producers in Georgia. And all of those could equate to Southern bees. Um, however, the ones from Georgia probably are going to have a better disposition than the ones from Florida and from Texas. <laughs> Then I would probably say she's from Georgia then because she's a sweetheart. She's a sweet Georgia bee. She is. And I lived in Georgia for a while, you know, so she's a sweet peach. Very good. Very good. So with the bees, you also have the chickens. And yep. that was probably um, for for anybody out there who who is not listening to the show just for beekeeping. If you have other things, obviously, that you do, like myself, I used to have chickens and I dearly miss them. Um, that's one of the other aspects of your podcast that I like is that it does have the variety of these other things in there. And I was quite astounded when I very first listened to your show because the very first episode, you just dive headfirst into an autopsy. And I was like, oh, my God, we're going there. OK, all righty then. <laughs> Yeah, so I am very do-it-yourself when you can. And I and I think that's a trait that homesteaders, you know, aspire to. Ideally, we're homesteaders are working to be as self-sufficient as possible, however that looks like. You know, I know some people go all out, they're trying to get completely off-grid, and others are just trying to grow their own food, you know, be a little less needing to spend money at the grocery store and rely on people who ship in your vegetables or fruits or whatever. And as I've mentioned a lot, on my show. My husband's a biologist. And so um, he actually has a dissection kit that we have here at the house. But I was not able to find it the day I needed to slice up my chicken. So I actually ended up doing it with a pair of scissors and just a kitchen knife. Oh, Lord. Yes, it was. And it wasn't pleasant, obviously, but it went a lot better than I thought. And as I mentioned in that episode, I used the Chicken Health Handbook, which is an incredible guide. And there's actually a number of people online as well who share really wonderful photos of how to do things like this yourself. And for me, it was important because now I am fortunate that, again, if anyone's listened to the show, I have I do take my chickens to the vet. I can afford to do that. But there are some parts of being a homesteader that I feel it's better to learn yourself, both to save money and to really understand a situation. And considering that 
at least in this area, I wasn't that squeamish and I really wanted to know. Instead of investing in going to my local avian vet and paying a couple of hundred dollars for him to do it, I knew I could do it myself. So I just got prepared. I put everything out, newspaper down, got my gloves on, got my cutting tools, you know, double checked everything in my book, double checked a couple of pictures and then just dived in head first. And I was able to identify what had killed my chicken. And it did give me a lot of reassurance that there was nothing I could have done for her and that it wasn't anyone's fault. It was just sadly one of those things that can happen. Now, see, and I think that's a great attribute right there. It's one of the things that I really, you know, applaud you on is that it doesn't matter if it's the chickens, if it's the reptiles, if it's the bees, like you go in depth to here's the possibilities. Here's almost in a scientific method manner how I eliminated X, Y, and Z and why I came to this conclusion. Now then to validate that conclusion, you go through and you do things like this where you will actually do an autopsy on a chicken if you need to, or you'll go through and, and you know, really dive in deep to what's going on with one of the hives. And then you can come back and present that in a way that is very educational for everybody else. You know, there may be people out there that never in a million years would do an autopsy on their chicken. However, listening to your show they can actually gain insight from that and turn around and say, oh, you know what? They are exhibiting a lot of the exact same characteristics that I heard Gemma talk about, and this was ultimately the outcome. So it kind of at least gives them an educated guess in which direction to go. And it helps you because you're learning as you go and you're mm -hmm. then imparting this wisdom and knowledge as you learn it back out to your audience. And I love that. I think that's amazing. Well, thank you so much. I do appreciate it because you know I'm always a little torn between... Um, I'm the feel I'm going for with my podcast is I understand that I'm talking to people who are part of a relatively small hobby, at least in terms of those who listen to podcasts about beekeeping and chicken keeping and homesteading. And so knowing it's a smaller group, I'm, I'm always a little torn between am I going too heavy on the science and the biology? And I'm, am I alienating people who just feel that it, it's just too much? It's like sitting in, in a lecture or whatever. But also I want to have that kind of connection with my audience of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of putting my heart on my sleeve here. I'm just sharing my experiences. I'm sharing my mistakes. And I want to connect with people and make them feel that we're all in this together. We're a community working together with these shared hobbies. So it's very rewarding for me to hear you say that you like the way I've approached it. And also just from a total fangirl moment, because I love your podcast. And so when we were talking the other day and you were like, oh, when I listened to this episode or whatever, I was like, oh my God, he listens to my podcast. He actually has listened to it. So that made me really happy. And I just, I really appreciate it. Well, it, it is it is definitely um, my honor to go through and do that. Because like I said, I, I actually, in a lot of ways from your podcast, I'm living vicariously through you because I, I came from a homestead kind of background back in the day. You know, I grew up out in the sticks and out in the country with nothing out there. And, you know, we, we learn an appreciation for nature and for insects and for animals and critters and stuff. And then I moved up into the city and there for a little while, I did have my own little oasis in utopia where my backyard, my so my front yard was insanely small. It was literally a sliver of grass that you could probably clear in two to three swipes of the lawnmower off to the side of my driveway. And the backyard was freaking massive. And it took up this huge swath. It kind of went back, started off like a rectangle and then had like a triangle stuck on the back half of it, went into this weird pie shape. 
And I had I had my two main at the time uh, Langstroth colonies, and I also had a top bar colony back there. I had my chickens. I, you know, because the everybody needs a water source, right? So much like your mint pond, I <laughs> didn't just put a water fountain out there. I <laughs> dug up this giant section of the yard and I put in this four foot pond. It was four foot deep in the deepest spot. And then it had a stream that that kind of snaked up to this little higher point where then there was a rock waterfall feature. Like, I mean, I went all out, but I had nothing mm-hmm. but time to just tinker and toil. And I love being out playing in the dirt anyway. Um, and I had a garden and like, so I, I just had all this stuff. And then, you know, life changes and moves on. And, and I am in a different home now where those things are not as suitable. So the chickens have have moved on out to the organic farm, the organic chicken farm out there by where the apiary is. And, you know, the pond is now gone. It has been reduced to just a tiny little self-contained above ground water feature, you know, like what most sensible people would have done to begin with. <laughs> so, <laughs> but on yours, on your mint pond, speaking of that, yes. the, are you not just absolutely astounded with the amount of different pollinators that come to mint when you allow it to bloom. It's very much like your sunflowers. Isn't it incredible? And I feel like mint has this terrible reputation. You know, everyone's like, don't put it in the ground. Don't let it flower. You know, it, it takes over and it does take over. Don't get me wrong. But it is absolutely incredible when it blossoms. It, almost every single pollinator that you could think of, you will see on a mint yep. plant. And Absolutely. there's so many different mints. You can experiment with all different kinds of culinary mints and um, you know, lemon balm is in the mint family. There's so much to do with them. So it's not just good for your local pollinators, but once the flowers have died off, which is what I'm waiting for right now, I can cut it all back. It dries beautifully. And aside from being able to use it in like teas and like cooking, if you dry it and crumble it down, it's like little flakes, you can sprinkle it through your chicken coops and it makes the bedding smell really sweet and some studies have shown that it can actually help reduce um, various parasite infections like lice or mite. Now see that that actually kind of makes sense because we planted it around the perimeter of our garden. We have a raised bed very large garden and we planted it on the outside of the framework for the garden so that it could grow and one of those attributes was that it is supposed to keep away other certain pests and so we were like well we're going to make this barrier and boundary around the garden with that. And then we strategically planted other plants that are also supposed to help with the the little nuisance pests for your garden. And, and so I can see that, you know, taking it and actually crumbling it up and putting it into a coop once it's dried, it would help with the aromatic aspect of it. But then that aromatic aspect actually helps deter mites and other things in there too. So See, that's actually really cool. I just drink a whole lot of mint tea. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, nice. I don't have the coop to put it in anymore. But yeah, the uh, the aspects that you can do with all those different things are amazing. And that's one of the reasons why we should let all of our herbs, you know, if you have herbs out there and you're going through and you're trimming them and you're cutting them, it leave at least one of every variety yeah. to go into full bloom because you will truly be amazed at the amount and the variety of different pollinators that will come to those. Absolutely. And I give full credit to a local coffee shop called Artisan Coffee that I absolutely love. Um, They're in Akron, Ohio, and they have this beautiful little garden at the back of their their shop. And they have like rose bushes and lavender and they have mint. And that was the first time I ever saw anyone let mint bloom. 
And this was in that year where I didn't have bees yet, but I was obsessed with them. And I would just sit out there with my phone, taking, you know, camera footage, taking pictures and then footage of all these different pollinators. And so one of the first things I knew I had to do when I started getting into gardening was I have to get at least two different kinds of mint and just put it everywhere. Yeah. That, that made me think of something that made me chuckle, actually, because you're saying you're sitting out there with your phone and you're taking all these pictures and stuff. I oftentimes get in trouble because we're going somewhere or supposed to be going somewhere. And I will walk by something and it I will it'll be teeming with pollinators and it'll catch my attention. And suddenly everything else goes away. I've got my phone out. I'm trying to take pictures. I'm trying to take video. And I hear my family go, where did John go? Oh, God, he's back there taking. He saw a bee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it thankfully my. So my husband, the biologist, is uh, he specializes in reptiles, which is part of why we have so many. And so I can't take him outside without him like disappearing and then reappearing holding like a snake or a lizard or something. And so what's nice is when I got obsessed with bees, now it's like, well, where's Henry? Oh, Henry found a garter snake. Where's Gemma? Oh, Gemma's like taking pictures of bumblebees. Yeah, it's all it's all just it's just a normal day. <laughs> it's all just exactly. exactly. So that's actually that's actually a great transition into another thing here that I was going to bring up and talk about is the different reptiles and stuff that you guys have out there. You specifically mm-hmm. raise a, a certain type of lizard, correct? That's right. Yes. I'm going to let um, you say what is... they are because I will butcher it. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no problem. It is, um, it's an Australian species originally, and it's called a pink tongue skink. And they are semi-arboreal and they're very light bodied. Um, I think they're relatively small, uh, but they're about almost two foot long, although a lot of that's tail. And they weigh around 125 grams. So for me, that's a pretty small bodied lizard. But they're beautiful to look at. What are, they, what are we comparing this to if a two okay. foot long lizard is small? <laughs> well, it's because they're light. It's like 125 grams. It's nothing. Um, okay, okay so you're so going you by weight, idea, not overall length. <laughs> yes. And to give you an idea, when I first met my husband and we were dating, he had what is called a blue tegu, and it's a kind of monitor lizard. And it was, uh, his name was Darwin, and he was about five foot long. Three foot of that was tail, and he probably weighed about 15 pounds. So he was okay. like a small dog, or yeah. if not larger, and very, very strong, very powerful jaws, very uh, sharp claws, but he was a big reptilian puppy. He was just the sweetest baby. Very cool. So, yes, then in comparison, your skinks are very small. <laughs> Yes. And I I do keep another species of skink called the blue tongue skink. And blue tongues are a bit more spread out in their range. So they are found in Australia, but they're also found in places like Indonesia as well. And I keep it um, Indonesian species. And in comparison, my blue tongue are probably about three foot long and incredibly heavy bodied. Um, I actually haven't weighed them in ages, but they have to be a good you know, couple of pounds each. And they're just like giant sausages with legs. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm still having visions of dogs. And so I just saw a really, really overweight Datsun walking through my head, an oversized sausage with legs. <laughs> that is actually what I feel. So I, I sometimes playfully call my um, female peaches, I sometimes call her Jabba the Hut because <laughs> she's very chunky and she gets like little jowls on her. That's normal for the species. But so she just looks like she's got these big double chins every time she looks at me. <laughs> nice. Now you also have, I, I'm, you have one tortoise. 
That is Higgins. I do have one tortoise. That is Higgins. Yes. And and this is where the embarrassing part comes in. It's it's to Higgins' detriment here. Um, Higgins <laughs> has a girlfriend. He does. And, yeah. <laughs> it's not a traditional girlfriend. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Higgins' girlfriend is a little ceramic pot. Yes. Now, I, I will say, from looking at the pot, it does resemble a tortoise shell in a shape. So I will not fault Higgins on that first part. Um, But Higgins apparently is very much bonded and in love with this pot to the point where you have actually bought other representations for Higgins to maybe bond with. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with them. The pot is his. That's that's all there is to it. (laughs) Yes. I actually, one of the last times I was visiting my family in England, um, we were at a garden center and I found this incredible tortoise statue that looked so realistic. And I originally bought it because I love, you know, just garden statues. But once I got it home, I was like, oh, this would be great. I can give it to him and he can stop abusing the poor pot. You know, at least now it looks like a tortoise. Maybe this would be more, um, I don't know, normal, fulfilling. I don't know how to phrase it. And he like investigated the statue, but was having none of it. He is 100% committed to his pot. <laughs> and uh, and so for for everybody out there, if you look up <laughs> Homestead Hens and Honey on Instagram, all, all together, one word, at Homestead Hens and Honey, you will see a video that Gemma has posted of Higgins. And, you know, at certain times of the year, um, Higgins goes through his natural mating cycle and desires. And uh, he and the pot have a little fling. And (laughs) I laughed and laughed and laughed. And I was I was in tears. So when I commented on that and I put the little laughy crying face, that was true to form because I was dying Turtles make noise when they copulate. (laughs) Who would have ever thought? (laughs) You are making me say this great secret of tortoise keeping. So I always joke that no one tells you before you get a tortoise that male tortoises are sex mad. No one tells you. And, um, and I don't know if, I think in the books, it's like there is a mating season and you might notice some behavior, but that's kind of it. <laughs> so you end up with a male because tortoises are sexable based on how long their tail is and the shape of their tail. So let's say you get a male and you bring it home and it hits sexual maturity and it starts, you know, copulating with random things in its enclosure. And you post to some kind of community like, oh my goodness, what is happening here? And everyone basically is like, congratulations, now you know the secret. Male tortoises are sex mad. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, Wow. Well, more power to you, Higgins. (laughs) Right? I mean, he, I will say, It's a lot better than it used to be when we moved from, so I got Higgins in Georgia and I actually adopted him from someone who found him in her yard and immediately identified that this is not a native species for Georgia. Um, He is a Russian tortoise and they are only uh, imported. And um, so she put signs up and, you know, she posted on various places in Craigslist and no one claimed him. So she kept him. And then she herself was moving on and needed to downsize because she was a big tortoise fan. And um, she decided that she'd rehome Higgins. So I got him and I brought him home. So I didn't know how old he was. And so we were there in Georgia for another year or so before we moved to 
Ohio. And that first year we were here in Ohio, I think he hit sexual maturity because for eight months he was with his pot squeaking away for the whole day for eight months and it got to the point so we lived in this big rental house it was huge it was this beautiful uh, Tudor style house it was way too big for us it had like five bedrooms but it was the best rental we could get at the time and we had a very short time to find one and I could be upstairs on the second or even sometimes the third floor and because of all the wood and the way the house was designed I would just hear echoing like from downstairs and I'd be like god damn it Higgins again constantly it was like being sexually harassed in my own home (laughs) oh wow oh that is that is priceless that is absolutely priceless right so all I'm saying to people out there is look people want a male tortoise because they're smaller. So most tortoises and turtles are sexually dimorphic, which means that the males and the females are different sizes and the females are always larger. So a lot of people want the males because they need a lot of space, tortoises in general, but you can have a slightly smaller enclosure if you have a male versus the female. So people want the males, but I'm gonna tell you now, just be prepared. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, oh man. I I just can't. I have to keep muting my microphone because I'm like dying over <laughs> here. Um, well, I, I definitely, I am sure everybody got quite the kick out of that. And, and again, the video is out there on her Instagram. If you want to go check it out, Homestead Hens and Honey, you will see Higgins. You will hear Higgins. And when you hear Higgins, <laughs> your life will be altered forever. <laughs> Um, I was telling you a story when we were chatting the other day that I had a Higgins moment that was not on purpose, but um, I was trying to hold down an extractor that was trying to walk out of a room. And I was like, had my feet on the the board that it's bolted down to. And I had like one leg halfway around it. And I had a death grip on the top and was pressing it down. And, and it was still <laughs> like trying to leave with me. And I was told that, hey, you look a lot like that turtle you showed me online. <laughs> So, yeah, probably like I said, not what you wanted to hear. It made me laugh, which made it even harder to hold down the actual extractor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that uh, that it did it, it, that has forever changed my life now that I have this knowledge. Um, you wanted to at one point get into like giant tortoise rescue or something, didn't you? Yes. Oh, I can't believe you remember that. Yes. So this is something that my husband and I have um, talked about. So. My husband, interestingly enough, he was actually born in England, but he was raised in the South, as, as I just keep calling it. Um, he Specifically, he grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and then um, various places in Florida. And he loves Southern states, and he's always wanted to go back in particular to Louisiana. So we've bounced around quite a lot for my husband's um, academic schooling and then career. And um, I... When we lived in Georgia, I really didn't like it. Um, It was mainly the heat and the humidity and all the bugs, which I think we talked about a bit about all the cockroaches and mosquitoes. Yes. And then also some of it was just sort of the culture was very different in Georgia. And I I struggled a little bit with that. Um, But I think my husband really does want to one day go back to Louisiana. And so one of the things that I said to him was, I go where he goes because, you know, he's my heart. So I follow him. But if we do ever go back to the South, 
then what I really want to do is get another property with land so I can keep, you know, homesteading and beekeeping. But I would really love to have enough land to rescue giant tortoises because people buy these itty bitty, like three inch long, absolutely adorable baby tortoises, which are usually things like sulcatas. And I don't know if you're familiar with sulcatas. They're sometimes called African spurred tortoises. Have you ever seen one? I probably have, but did not necessarily realize that's what it was. I have seen several giant tortoises, but never as babies. Okay, so the the really big tortoises that you see a lot in the U.S. that have um, really armored looking front legs, like almost with spurs on them, that's the sulcata. And a, a full grown sulcata can get to be hundreds of pounds. And they're very destructive because they're diggers and they're used to living in kind of a desert, hard packed ground environment. So a sulcata, a full grown sulcata can actually dig through cement if given enough time. Holy crap. And that makes them, yes. So they're very difficult to keep, but a lot of pet stores and a lot of uh, vendors sell them as these tiny cutie little babies and they are precious i love them but they're going to become ginormous and so usually what happens is people get them as babies because they're so cute and then they get bigger and they get bigger and they get bigger and they reach a point where they realize this animal is i can't even pick it up it's hugely destructive it won't stay in my yard because it will literally break through the fencing or dig its way out and they don't know what to do so they either abandon them in the wild or they give them to some kind of reptile rescue and you just need a lot of land to keep animals that are that big. So it's always kind of been a dream of mine that if we were ever fortunate enough to live in an area where it's warm enough to keep them outside and have that kind of property, I would absolutely love to rescue them. So it, it basically all is systemic and starts off the same way that anything else in the exotic animal trade does. You get this thing that is cute and tiny and it's all fun and dandy until all of a sudden it gets so big that you don't know what to do anymore. And then people just panic or give up and just turn them loose. Exactly. And I, you know, I've been involved in the reptile community for a number of years. First as just a hobbyist and a pet owner and now as a small scale breeder. And as much as I have made incredible connections, the overall attitude of many people in that community is, well, I want it and I want it now. And there's not a lot of looking ahead and considering, can I house this animal appropriately? Can I keep this animal for its lifespan, which in the case of a tortoise is over 100 years. So you need this animal to be in your will. Yep. And people just aren't thinking about that. And so they think, well, I want this tortoise. It's really cute. And it's small right now. And that's all that matters. And the problem is tortoises produce huge numbers of eggs. And when incubated in captivity, almost all of them will hatch. And so we're talking about potentially thousands of baby tortoises being born every year just in the US. And I don't know about you, but I don't know thousands of people who have giant tortoises. So right. what's happening to all of those babies? Yeah, that is crazy. I have a friend that is obsessed with parrots and had ah. looked into getting a, I think, and I may completely mess this up, but I think it was a hyacinth macaw, yep. um, a massive blue version, kind of looks like a toucan, but not quite, but a massive, yep. beautiful blue bird. And that bird was going to outlive him. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I told him, I was like, just so you know, this isn't a dog. This isn't going to be like a 10 or 15 year commitment. This is a 50 plus year commitment minimum. Mm-hmm. And that was the only thing that finally kind of sank in was like, oh, God, wow, that's that's possibly longer than I may live. And I'm like, exactly. This bird yeah, is going to outlive you. For sure. And on top of that, parrots. So I won't touch a parrot. Like if someone came up to me and said, here's this beautiful parrot, I will give it to you for free. I would be like, hell no, I will help you find a home for it. But you cannot pay me to take that animal. And the reason why is that parrots are incredibly smart. They're like having a toddler and they need a lot of stimulation and a lot of um, engagement with them because they also emotionally bond to their flock, which is you. So people get these beautiful birds they put them in terrible tiny cages. Like, I'm going to just say any cage that you can buy at a pet store for a parrot is not big enough. You need to yep. make a flight cage. And so they put them in these tiny environments. They lose interest in them. They don't interact with them. They don't handle them enough. They don't give them stimulation. And they wonder why this bird is screaming day and night and pulling out its own feathers. And it's because you've just mentally tortured this poor baby it needs you to interact with it. It needs you to stimulate it emotionally and mentally. And so that's a a whole other mess that I just, I can't touch because I just know my limits and I I don't have human toddlers. I'm not going to get a feathered one either. (laughs) Well, at least you know where you stand. That is better than some people I can (laughs) think of. That's true. Oh, wow. Um, Let me see here. Let's see if there was anything else. I know that you have recently been going through and uh, doing what you and I joked about as possibly one of the longest book reviews ever on your (laughs) podcast. Uh, You are you're breaking down and disseminating out all of the information from Thomas Seeley's book. uh, Is it The Lives of Bees? That's right. Yes. Yes. And you're almost there. We were joking. You, you, you've <laughs> almost reached the end. You've just put out chapter eight. So you only have three yes. more chapters to go. Um, I know. What uh, What do you think? Where Where do you see everything going once your book review is finally done? Are you going to be like, oh, thank God, you know, like this was a great idea when I started and, and finally I'm done? Or are you going to be going, well, now what do I do? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a little of both. So I know I've mentioned to you before, this is definitely one of those things that I said I was going to do. And then I got into the middle of it and was like, oh God, what have I done? Why did I tell people that I would do this? Just because it is very science heavy and I'm trying to condense the material in a way that is accessible to everyone so that even if you don't have a a science background or a maths background, that you don't feel overwhelmed by the information. And so it takes me a while to work through, but it is absolutely fascinating. And I am just constantly running out of the room and grabbing my poor husband and being like, oh my God, did you know this about bees? Like, did you know that they have to be at a certain temperature in order to just to use their flight muscles? And he's like, oh, that's very interesting. And I'm like, yes, it is. Um, so when it's done, I will be very, very relieved. But I, uh, I there's two things I'm hoping that I will follow up with. And the first one is that, I am desperately waiting for our full nectar flow to start because we're still in the dearth here in my part of Ohio and I cannot get into my hives. Um, My girls are very much on edge. It's not so much that they're aggressive with me as that they're aggressive with the other hives or they're robbing. It's just not a good time to be out there. So I'm hoping that once the full nectar flow is here, I will be able to share with people all the things that I've fallen behind on. I'm behind on doing my 
checks, for instance, and I need to consider treatment options. And then hopefully I will be getting um, more honey and figuring out, you know, how much honey I need to leave on, how much I can take. So I'm hoping to have more bee news. But I also have a number of other books that I'm looking to uh, review. And it won't be as in-depth as what I've been doing because they're um, less scientific and more just sort of general guideline books. So my next book that I will be looking at will be about top bar beekeeping, which is something I'm hoping to do starting next year. <laughs> not that I'm biased or anything, but you know. <laughs> oh, clearly not. I mean, it, it looks, so, I'm so fascinated. And I have been since the minute I started looking into bees. Um, I don't know if other people had this experience, but when I really looked into keeping bees, I had that moment where I'm like, huh, there are different types of hives. I never knew that. So yeah, there's, I've that's actually something a lot it. of people come across. Yes. And I, and obviously Langstroth and top bars, but there's different kinds of top bars. There's now like long Langstroths, there's the Warre hive, and then obviously the flow hive. And these are all things that I'd like to experience at least once. You know, if I can, I'd love to give them all a try. I think that's, that is actually, you know, if you can do it and do it in a sustainable fashion for yourself and for your budget, um, building things, especially when it comes to the top bar, building things are going to be a lot better and cheaper than trying mm-hmm. to buy one fully assembled. And it gives you a lot of experience and knowledge and stuff by going through that process as well. But yeah, if you can definitely go through and, you know, try each of the different styles because it just, it gives you that much more information and basis to compare things on and see, well, in nature, this is how this works. And I can see that kind of paralleled over here in the top bar or in the war a, you know, and, and see the pros and cons of it. It actually helps out quite a lot. Yeah. So that's definitely where I'm hoping to head towards. Very cool. Now you did mention something and, and we'll we'll tie this up here, kind of going back to a, a very happy subject. This is your second year of beekeeping technically yes. now. And you just yes. got your first honey harvest, which you mentioned here a little bit ago. Uh, you got yes. roughly 53, 54 pounds, like almost right in between there of honey this year. Yep. Um, and I actually just, so it was a little bit risky because of the dearth and the robbing behavior, but... I actually was able to take another medium 10 frame super off of honey and I just harvested that. Now, not all the frames were full and not so much they weren't full of honey. It was sort of interesting. Some of the sides they had started making comb, but they didn't finish it before the dearth hit. And so they just packed the honey into what they had. So I'm going to estimate that I've got between 30 and 37 pounds from this recent harvest. Nice. So what was your what was your first thought when you got it out and you tasted your very own honey for the very first time? It was amazing. I couldn't believe how good it tasted. (laughs) And um, actually, I I kept on going back to it and wondering what exactly it was I was tasting. So obviously it's sweet, but it was kind of tangy. And I kept on feeling that it reminded me of something. It took me a while, but I finally figured out that it, it reminds me of really, really good marmalade just very tangy but sweet and I don't know it's not exactly citrusy but almost do you guys have horse mint up there I'm actually not sure I'm still that's part of where I'm still learning is identifying what kind of plants we have in our area there there are several different varieties of horse mint and horse mint is also called bee balm so if you look up bee balm and you look up horse mint 
they're kind of synonymous for the exact same style or species and lineage, lineage of plants. But there are several different mm-hmm. ones. We've got three different varieties here in Central Texas. But one of the interesting things is like the spotted horse mint that is a, a white and green striped leafed plant kind of adds a spicy flavor to things. Whereas like the, the purple horse mint and some of the other horse mints will add this tang is what made me think of it is when you were talking about the, the flavor palette there, it'll add this tang or this high zing note at the very end. Like it hits you and, and you're like, whoa, you know, kind of like at that last little moment. So it is so fascinating though, the different types of plants that are out there and how they can can go through and, and kind of contribute to that. But my favorite down here is is our early spring honey. It comes out mixed, depending on if you leave it a little bit later in the year, it will be mixed with mesquite because our mesquite will bloom a little bit later into the spring and summer, but it comes out very, very, very light amber, uh, almost runnier than what you would think, but the moisture content is still actually down below the 18%, but it's a lot more fluid and viscous and not as thick. And it tastes like you're chewing on a bouquet of flowers. Like it is just the most nature in your mouth, spring envisioning thing. And I love it so much. Um, But it is, there is nothing that beats your own honey. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're at. When you taste your own honey, especially the spring honey for the first time, it is the best stuff in the world. It absolutely. And I'm very fortunate that um, I do have beekeepers near me. So before my first harvest, I was only getting my honey from them and the spring honey harvest was always my favorite and I saw things that you said like it was runnier than I thought it would be that was kind of a surprise for me it was that beautiful pale color but it was just so aromatic and just the flavors were incredible and I really thought last year when I had my neighbor's honey that that was the best honey I'd ever tasted but then I got my own harvest and now I have to say yes my own honey is the best honey that I've ever tasted See, there you go. Ken would disagree because obviously, you know, Ken's <laughs> is award-winning, world-renowned honey in Ken's world. Clearly. Um, yeah, but I think that is actually the truth for everybody out there. We all have our own award-winning, amazing, magical honey, and it's our very own honey, especially the very first harvest we ever get to do and get to try is just, it's it's mind-blowing, and it is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience that then you can go back and you can have that memory and be like, oh my gosh, I remember when I tried my honey for the very first time. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I and you know, I because I never do anything halfway, which is probably becoming clear to anyone listening. So I, you know, I bought these beautiful jars and I bought some little um, like decorative, they're kind of designed like little skeps, like little honey skeps and the lids have a honeybee printed on them and I had my own labels made and and I sent some off to friends and family because I was so proud of what my girls had produced and all these kind of moments I'm just never going to forget them and the feedback from my friends and my neighbors it just it's so rewarding to have people consume something that these what feel like magical insects made for me and that I helped produce and have them tell me this is delicious this is so good like you did a great job it's just incredibly rewarding and I'm, I'm so glad that I get to do what I do I think that that is actually the perfect sediment to to wrap this all up on is we all just strive to want to be able to do something that we love to do and be able to even if we can't necessarily make a living at it, but still support ourselves in some way. And if that hobby can support itself by the sell of honey and wax and things like that, and you do get that kind of feedback, that is 
that is the ultimate goal. Even if it's just one hive in your backyard, if you can share it with your family and give them that, you know, magical experience of tasting the honey and loving it, I think that's ultimately what it all comes down to. Absolutely. Well, I greatly appreciate you joining me here today. And I appreciate you taking the time over this last week to go through and work through some of these little technological changes that we've been doing here on the show. So Gemma has been helping us for everybody out there, test some of these new systems that we're going to be using for some fun future things. Um, For those of our members that are on Patreon, you already know what I'm talking about in one aspect. So I greatly appreciate it. It has been an absolute joy and pleasure getting to talk with you. And uh, hopefully we can uh, we can do this again sometime soon. Yeah, I would love to. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. I'm still sort of quietly fangirling over here. So um, if I sounded nervous during any of this, that would probably be why. But I do really appreciate it. And I'm so glad that you listened to my podcast. That just means the world to me. Oh, well, again, it is my pleasure. And I don't think... Anybody noticed that if you were nervous, nobody noticed because we were all just in awe and marvel of your accent and and the smooth British tone. So you see, it's like it's just exactly like you were told. It's a voice that you could listen to forever. <laughs> well, thank you. And that does play in my favor. So hopefully no one ever notices when I stumble over a word or say something silly because they're just sort of drifting in a haze of Britishness. That's right. You have you have cast a glamour on them and they're just in awe and they don't notice these other things. That's that's exactly how we'll go with it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again so much. And for everybody else out there, if you would like to hear more from Gemma, you can check out her podcast. It is on any platform that you listen to podcasts on. Look up Homestead (laughs) Hens and Honey. And you will be taken there. She has a blog on her webpage as well that you can go through and actually read and see some of the different pictures about what she talks about in the show. Um, Kudos to you on that. That is something that I never seem to find the time to do. Um, (laughs) Just sit down and transcribe all of it. Um, But yes, uh, definitely go out there, check Gemma out. And if you would like to hear more from Gemma and I, you can tune in to her next episode, which technically comes out tomorrow, and hear the other side of this interview where we get to flip the tables and uh, Gemma gets to go through and torture me for a little while. That's right. So if anyone listening has ever wondered, you know, how John got into this crazy business of beekeeping and bee removals and honey production and podcasting, definitely come over to Podbean or wherever you listen to your podcast, check me out and I get to uh, ask him all those questions. It was a, it was very fun. I cannot wait for everybody to hear and thank you. Thank you again so much. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Okay. So in signing off, you have to give me a, a B word. Like we always have our be cool, be happy, be safe. What's your B word for closing here? Be healthy. Be healthy. Okay. We'll take it, especially in the COVID world that we live in. Everybody <laughs> should definitely be healthy. And uh, just to flip the script on you, Gemma, go out there and give your chickens a huge hug for me, but then go wash your hands. <laughs> uh, thank you. And I will do that for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye bye been listening to the hive jive we appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures and you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com and as always thanks for listening